you know, this all may sound a little for profity, but I think it can all be done in a nonprofit, mission driven way. And leaders in higher education just need to be prepared to disrupt systems that have been in places for literally hundreds of years. And that is not going to be easy, hence the magic wand. But I actually truly believe it'll be necessary. And so if I could do it, that's what I would do. Hey there, and welcome to the Enrollify podcast. Each week, the Enrollify podcast equips you with insights into how the latest trends in marketing and technology are affecting today's enrollment marketers. Every episode is designed to inspire new creative ideas for how to optimize the resources you do have to generate the results that you need. I'm your host, Zach Buzicruz. Welcome to the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Enrollify podcast. Zach here, and today I am joined by none other than Karen Hebert. Macaro, who is the GM of education at Morning Brew. How are you doing today, Karen? I'm doing great, Zach. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. It's been an honor. You know, I was thinking about how we connected. I was just remembering this right before we hopped on and we connected discussing whether or not vegetables as a replacement for starches were were good or not we we connected on Twitter and I believe you had you you had some commentary on like riced cauliflower and how it was just, I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but what I remember <laughs> was that it was less than satisfactory um, as far as you were concerned. Yeah, well, look, I don't mind rice cauliflower. Don't get me wrong, Zach. But the fact that people substitute it for rice, you know, it's sort of the, the tweet that I made that connected us with something like, you know, I'm a little insulted by the fact that rice cauliflower thinks it can substitute for rice. I'm okay with it as long as I don't pretend that it's anything other than it is. <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel that way about, I think we were talking about this too, but Trader Joe's has these cauliflower mashed potatoes and my wife keeps trying to convince me that they're just as good as regular mashed <laughs> potatoes and they're not, you know, but you know, likewise, it's like, if I know I'm eating cauliflower mashed potatoes and if I convince myself that, Hey, this is somehow supposed to be a little bit better, they don't taste as bad. So I, I can get behind it, but definitely not a substitution as far as I'm concerned. No, no, it doesn't. It's not the same. Doesn't mean it's bad. It's not the same. And that's the thing. Well, Karen, it's a real privilege to to get to talk to you. And we've got lots to discuss today. But I, I want to start by just helping our audience get to know you a little bit better. So sure. one of my favorite questions to ask people that that come on the show is if I were to grab a happy hour with some of your closest friends and colleagues, and if I were to ask them to tell me a little bit about Karen, what do you imagine that they'd say? That's a great question. Well, I'd hope that they'd say that I was a kind person, that I was devoted to my my two girls, someone who I think professionally, I would hope people would say that I was someone who loves to build and grow things, because I do, that I'm effective at what I do, that I'm a fair leader. And I mean, ultimately, you know, in the professional context, something that I think would be a real honor would be to have people say that they would work with me again in a heartbeat. You know, mm. like that's sort of like the NPS score for your your career. If people would be like, yeah, I'd work with her again in a heartbeat, you, you know, you've done something right. So I would hope that they would say those things about me, Zach. Wonderful. Well, you seem like one of those people that retains 
relationships well. Like it seems from the little bit that we've discussed and even just kind of like stalking you on LinkedIn and seeing how you've kind of jumped around <laughs> over the course of your career, it seems like you've done a really great job at, at leaving that impact on people. So much so that, you know, you've worked at, uh, you know, the same place a couple of times in a different capacity, you know, a couple of different capacities. And it sounds like what we're going to dive into a lot of this today, but it sounds like, you know, you've really relied on the colleagues that you've met in, in one context to help set you up for, for jobs and opportunities in the next. So for what it's worth, I think I would imagine that they'd agree with you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks, Ed. So uh, over the course of your career, you've been a talent management ex executive, you've been a chief learning officer, a chief content officer, an executive coach, a management consultant, a business school professor, uh, and a dean. So, you know, I have to ask, like, you've done a lot of, you know, zigzagging and, and worn a number of hats. You know, how do you feel about job titles? Because I feel like there's a, I don't know if this is a lot of like virtual signaling going on or whatnot, but I feel like, like culturally people say things like, I don't care about job titles. Like job titles don't matter, especially like millennials. It's become this thing where it's like, you know, it's, it's not about the title. It's about what you do. So I'm curious, like, where do you fall on the spectrum of like, I don't really care about job titles given sort of the number of, you know, titles and many creative titles that you've actually held. I think this is a pretty complicated question, the big title debate. And I actually just wrote a Twitter thread on this on this very topic. Here's my answer. I think titles and their importance evolve over a person's career. Mm. Earlier in career, titles can actually be very important because they signal to the external marketplace things like progression, like if you go from an assistant to an associate or you suddenly have manager in your title or something that indicates you've taken on additional responsibilities, I think that can be really important to help you build towards your next step and to help you know, support you from a credibility standpoint. I also think that if you're in a position, regardless of seniority and title is holding you back from something, like if a certain title in an organization gets you access to certain types of conversations mm. or allows you to get the exposure you need to do your current job well, but for whatever reason, you don't have that title, therefore you don't have that access. That can be really, really important. And of course, if title is directly relevant or connected to pay, then I think you know it's, it's a fair thing to say that I need to be titled appropriately to be paid appropriately for the work that I'm doing, right? So titles can be really important. For me personally, as I've matured in my career, titles have become less important mm. to me, right? And actually, I just went from being the CEO of executive education at Babson, right? So the CEO title is objectively probably a desirable one to being the GM of education at Morning Brew. And some might see that as a bad title move, right? But I'm at a certain point in my career where what matters most to me are things like scope of role, compensation, autonomy. I want to work with really good people. I want to work with a company that's at a certain point in their life stage and that is growing. I want to work with a company that has a great culture that I feel is aligned with me personally. And so things like title, less important yeah, for me at yeah. this point in career. And so, you know, I, I don't say, ah, who cares about titles? I say, let's look at titles in the context of things like stage of career, progression, access to information flow, access to resources, access to pay, and then decide, is it important? Yeah. that the title be a specific something. That's a that's a wonderful answer. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that we're seeing right now too, especially especially for, you know, millennials, Gen Zers who are, 
in the startup ecosystem. It's like if you go and found a company with uh, a buddy and you are a co-found, you are the co-founder and CEO, and then you know, God forbid, the company fails, right? The startup doesn't go anywhere. You're never, you aren't quite able to to get off the ground or not get off the ground in the in a meaningful way. And you decide, you know what? Tried my hand at this thing, and it's just, it's not for me. Like I need, I yeah. I, I want to go take a more traditional, you know, route. And then you go and you enter as a, you know, assistant director of marketing at, at, you know, Morning Brew or whatever it might be. Let's say it's a company less yeah. cool than Morning Brew. It can kind of feel like this, this demotion or like you, it, it almost, it almost for like if you, if you get a desirable title or at least a title that society sees or tells you is desirable a little too soon in your career, <laughs> you know, anything else can feel like a demotion. And I, and, and I wonder like what that does, what that's going to do to this you know generation where founding a company has never been easier even getting in right at a company with a pretty senior title pretty early on in, you know in the company's life has never been easier than ever so i think it's too you know yeah, soon that, to tell but yeah go ahead yeah no i was just going to say Zach, for folks that find themselves in that situation the thing that i would recommend is to really polish up a career narrative mm. which is that story you know, that you can tell it's a little bit more complicated than just, you know, reading a resume and or a LinkedIn profile or whatever, and seeing they went from CEO to assistant director of marketing. I, I get that. But when you're in conversation, there is something that's really powerful about having that career narrative, sort of the arc of your career. Yeah, I was a CEO of a three person startup that I really learned so many different things from blah, 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 blah. Then I went on to do this. And that arc is going to become more and more common in your own words about, you know, how frequently people are able to get into um, startups or mm. try to start something themselves and how much it's sort of part of, of early careers now that it's going to become more and more common. So just polishing that career narrative, I think, is really a helpful way for people to deal with some of those shifts in career title that might seem odd at first. And I would just encourage people to think about it in that context. That's fantastic advice. Do you have just a, a quick last note on this, and then and then we have to move on because we have so many things to discuss. But do you have any any advice for where people acquire sort of context or or some knowledge as to how to do that well? Like, is there a book that you'd recommend, or a podcast that you subscribe to, or even just sort of like a thought leader in the space that you think is you know critically thinking about these things and has something to say that's at least you know worth listening to. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't want to be self-promotional, but I write a lot about this type okay. of stuff. So um, follow Karen on Twitter. Can, <laughs> that's right. People can follow me. Um, but I also think there's a lot of really great career strategists out there. So one of the things I often recommend to people who are in positions where they are starting to figure out how to lay out their career trajectory is to think about getting a coach. You know, if you want to read something about sort of careers and how to manage your career, there's a great book called Designing Your I think it's called Designing Your Career, and I'll have to look that up to make sure I got that correct, Zach, but I think it's called Designing Your Career, and there's like a corollary that's Designing Your Life, and you know, I think there's some really great stuff out there around thinking strategically about managing your career, hmm. and if you, you know, people just Google that, they're going to find a ton of stuff out there, but the most important thing to, to, to note is that no one is going to manage your career for you. You know, it's not, it's not 50, 100 years ago where, you know, you started at one institution and they just, you just worked your way up over the course of your entire life until you retired. Now people are making shifts all the time. They're not only shifting, you know, companies are shifting careers yeah. multiple times yeah. over the course of their life. So it's really important for people to think about what they want out of their career and try to do it deliberately as opposed to, to haphazardly. So Karen, you are Morning Brew's 
first GM of education, from my understanding, at least my Googling. And, you know, before joining Morning Brew, who for our listeners who aren't aware of Morning Brew, you guys are one of the fastest growing media companies in the world. You were recently acquired by Business Insider, I believe just over a year ago, just about a year ago. And before you joined this awesome, incredible startup who I have loved for years, you were the CEO of Babson Executive Education, as you've uh, already alluded to. And you also taught at Babson as a business professor. So I have so many questions for you. And when we first connected and, and chatted a couple of weeks ago, and I asked you to just talk a little bit about who you are and, and what you do, I was, you know, I couldn't stop taking notes. I think my notebook has like literally 50 different lines of, you know, half-baked thoughts based off of the things that you were sharing. So we have a lot to dive into. And I thought it would be helpful to kind of structure our conversation in, in three different ways. First, I want to chat a little bit more about who you are and how you think. Then I want to learn a little bit more about the products that Morning Brew is building in the education space under the new Learning Brew umbrella. And then finally, I, I want to pick your brain about the future of higher education. And specifically, given your context, what, if anything, education leaders can, can learn from what you and your team are, are building at Morning Brew. So as long as that sounds good to you, hopefully that's a, a solid great. plan of attack. Okay, wonderful. So first and foremost, could you share a, a story or two about your professional journey thus far that you think best captures who you are and, and how you think? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I often tell people that the thread that connects my entire career is that no matter where I've been inside companies, talent management divisions, inside media companies, building learning and development products for others to grow, or as a professor or a dean, it's always been about building and helping others grow. And so, you know, those two things are really the theme that ties everything I've done. The first story I'd share is that when I left undergrad with a bachelor's degree in English, I did what every good English major does. I went into financial services. Uh, what else can you do with an English degree? I learned a ton, but I knew that I was in the wrong place. Even at that very early point in my career, I knew that I was going to spend an awful lot of time, an awful lot of my life at work. And I wanted to be in a place and in positions that I had fun, that I loved, that I was committed to. This is a pretty high bar. Yeah. And I, I realized how privileged I am to be able to set that bar. Uh, so I, at that point in time, very early in my career, shifted back uh, to the only place that at that point I knew I really loved, which was college. And that's when I joined BAB the first time, right? And it was to get back into the environment that I really loved, which was that learning focused environment. And the second story I'll share was actually the point at which I shifted out of academia for the very first time after going into academia and going back into corporate. It was many, many years later. I had just um, had the opportunity to be the inaugural associate dean of the new business school at Worcester Polytechnic, which is where I went right after my first very long stint at Babson. It was, it was a great experience, by the way, to essentially build a startup within an established institution at WPI. But you can also see a theme here in my career, which is I was the first I was the first person to be in that position at WPI. I was the first person to be a chief content officer at O'Reilly Media. I'm the first GM of education at Morning Brew. I love to build. You love the so, first. So, you know, you love it, the first, I yeah. love I you know, it doesn't the first is it, what I love about the first is not that it, being the first, it's that it's the place where you can build the foundation for something. Yeah. And I love the build. I love the build or the rebuild, but but I love the build. And so when I left WPI, it was to challenge myself and grow in a way that I really felt like I needed to. You know, I had earned a PhD and I had some great academic leadership experience behind me. So it would make a lot of sense for me to stay 
I was teaching organizational behavior and leadership to MBA students, which I loved. But I decided it was time for me to walk the walk mm. and uh, become a practitioner in OD and to lead in a company. And so this shift was really important to my career. And while most of my corporate jobs have in one way or another been about learning to some degree, you know, like you know, succession planning and program development inside corporations or helping to build an online learning platform. But, you know, being in business also transformed me in a way and allowed me to expand my understanding of what it meant to be a business leader. And eventually I led multi-million dollar divisions across media departments and companies and, and, and at Babson and, and at Morning Brew. And so for me, I expanded into the business of learning mm. as opposed to the practice of learning and development. And the most important thing there is every role I've had, I, you know, I'm continuing to have a ton of fun, which was that bar that I set so many years ago. And so I'm so lucky to be able to say that. So those are sort of two little stories about my, my own journey that sort of tell you a little bit about who I am and why I've made certain choices. Those are perfect examples. And I, I want to follow up on the your your love of building, right? Because yeah, I, I I consider myself to also have an affinity for the you know zero to one phase of initiatives, <laughs> and I, I'd love your thoughts on what what kind of team or what sort of resources do you think people like you, the the builders of the world, need in that zero to one phase in order to in order to win, right? Because I, I think that there's like there's so many opinions and, and thoughts out there on on what this phase looks like, what you know, what it means to be a builder, whether you you know how entrepreneurial you need to be in your thinking in order to be successful, and you know uh, if if you could think about the times that you were especially successful, and success being defined as you either accomplished the thing that you set out to accomplish, and or you learned a lot of, along the way, even if it you know didn't ultimately work. What what do you think the environment like? How does the environment need to be designed to support building in a very early phase? Like, who needs to be there? What resources need to be available, etc. Yeah, it's a great question. So the 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 first thing I'll say that I have found very helpful in that zero to one early build stage is to get really smart people who are very ambitious and who are low ego. I call mm. that the trifecta. You know, if you're bright, if you're ambitious and driven and you're low ego, you are, you know, sort of golden because in the early stage of things, everybody's doing everything. If you're too ego focused or, you know, if you're not quick enough or if you're not driven enough, it's going to be really hard for you to catch up or keep up yep. and you're going to hurt the team. So one, one thing is I really look for that type of personality. Environmentally, what you have to do, I think, in that um, early stage is create, you know, the, the fancy term for it is psychological safety, but, but essentially what it means is you need to allow for people to debate and discuss and dissent and disagree fast, you know, because you can't spend, uh, you can't be installed situation as a result of continuous debate and discussion, but you need to be able to quickly and passionately because people who are committed and low ego and driven, they're going to be passionate about the work that they're doing. You have to be able to passionately and respectfully disagree, hmm. debate, and you know that also gets to the low ego. You know you can't be a, a huge egomaniac in those environments because things are going to shift all the time. Differences of opinion are what is going to drive is what is going to drive innovation inside organizations at that period of time. So for me, it's really about getting people who are bright and ambitious and low ego and putting them in an environment where respectful dissent and disagreement and innovation and creativity can happen 
And lastly, where there is a massive orientation to action. Because the reality is, is that at that stage, when you're early building, you're going to make mistakes. So, you know, act, learn, revise, act again. And I think that that kind of orientation towards action is is a big part of it as well. So much gold there, Karen. I really appreciate that. I, I feel like you just had like three or four Twitter threads right there. In, in, I'll in try your to turn it into that, that for you, Zach. Was, <laughs> so, so well said. I, lo- I love that the idea of that track back then. You know, what's funny is I think about people who might have low ego and are, you know, very bright, uh, but they're not faster and they're not, they're not quick enough. Uh, they're not ambitious enough. And, you know, any, you can't just have two of those things. I think in that early nope. phase, you really do need all three. As you were talking, I was, I was trying to think, well, could you have somebody who's fast and low ego? Oh, but you know, if they're not, you know, if they're not, enough, right. if they're not bright <laughs> enough, like that's going to be problematic, yeah. right? So you, you really do, you really do need all three. Uh, very well said. Yeah. So, okay, talk to us about Morning Brew. When when did you first hear about Morning Brew? And, you know, what was it that, it, you know, inspired you to to join the team? This is a pretty significant career shift, at least at least on paper, it could look that way with a little bit more mm-hmm. context, as you shared, maybe, maybe, you know, makes a little bit more sense. But how did you first discover Morning Brew? And what was it specifically that attracted you to the role? Yeah. Well, I had been reading Morning Brew for a while before I got the call from a recruiter. I was not looking um, for a job. I was in that position I mentioned at Babson as the CEO of Executive Education. And when the recruiter actually first reached out to me, he said, oh, I have this GM education role at a media company, but he didn't mention which media company. And to be honest, Zach, I wasn't terribly interested. I was sort of you know, lazy in getting back to him. It wasn't, wasn't something I was highly motivated to do. And finally, we arranged a call because I have a philosophy, which is that, you know, even if you're not looking, take recruiter calls for a variety of reasons. The first is you build relationships with recruiters, so you never know when you might be looking, and it's nice to have those relationships. Second of all, I try to make recommendations to recruiters mm. all the time, people in my network. So, hey, I'm not looking right now, but this sounds like a great role. I know two or three people who might be interested, and I think that's really good as part of sort of network building and connection with the people that you know and that you really respect. And third, you get a sense of what's out there in the market, you know, how it's being valued financially, also like what people are looking for, what's happening, what's new in this space. So I always try to take the recruiter calls, but there was no real urgency. When I first got on that call, he mentioned that it was for Morning Brew. And right away, I got about 10 times more interested because uh-huh. I, did li- I did know Morning Brew. I did like Morning Brew. I did read the newsletters. I did know a little bit about the origin story of the company. So I was interested. And what ultimately inspired me to join Morning Brew includes the trifecta that we just talked about. There, you know, All these people I met were very low ego, very smart, very really wanted to do something great in this space. And that was very appealing to me. Second, the brand spoke to me. You know, Morning Brew knows how to make complex and important business topics, fun and accessible. Mm. And I loved that. And I saw immediately how that could be incredibly valuable in the business education space. And then I think finally, the opportunity itself was all about building and scaling. They had one product in market at the time, the Morning Brew Accelerator program, which had been doing extraordinarily well. But when I met with Austin Reef, the CEO, you know, he, he was clear. He wanted to, to turn this into something much bigger. He believed in the power of education, as part of Morning Brew's products and services and brand. And I felt absolutely confident I could help him do that and help the company do that. And so it was a combination of, you know, real great appreciation for the Morning Brew brand, really great people that I knew had that trifecta quality that was important to me. And again, that build, which has been attractive to me all throughout my career. So really, that's what got me to join Morning Brew. And was the 
was the umbrella term of learning brew around already? Like, were you joining that? Did you come in and, and help develop that? Can you just, I guess, uh, for the sake of our listeners and, and my own sake, what exactly is learning brew and how, how does it kind of fit into the overarching context, uh, the overarching umbrella that is morning brew? Sure. So learning brew was not learning brew. Um, learning brew was something that happened after my arrival. It's, it's essentially a way to talk about the education division, which was started and they went in search of a GM, obviously, and, and then found me. But Learning Brew is the division of Morning Brew that is focused on extending beyond information, right? So Morning Brew mm. provides and informs and, ent- and, ent- and entertains and performs you know, valuable service for its readers today. But Learning Brew is an extension of that. It's focused on going from information and entertainment to education and entertainment um, because we still want to do it in the Morning Brew way. We still want to make it fun. We still want to make it accessible. And so Learning Brew is, we call it the Edgiverse. It's a multi-layered ecosystem of learning products and services. And we are hoping to help the ambitious professional achieve their career goals. So right now that looks like a couple of things. It looks like two categories of products. One is career accelerators and the other is skill accelerators. You might think in traditional education terms that career accelerators are kind of like core courses Hmm. and skill accelerators are kind of like electives, but they're both reimagined in a very morning brewian way, right? So career accelerators are six to eight week courses that are delivered in cohort, you know, in a cohort, and they're delivered online, both asynchronously and synchronously. And these career accelerators, they provide a whole toolbox of skills around a central theme. So MBA, which stands for Morning Brew Accelerator, um, is all about basic business acumen. We teach skills in communication, operation, and innovation. MBQ, which is another one of our career accelerators, the Q stands for quantitative there is a business numbers course for non-numbers experts. Mm. And we teach financial analysis, data analysis, and basic accounting concepts, right? Skill accelerators are these two to four week courses. They're also cohort-based. They're also asynchronous and synchronously delivered online. But instead of giving you a toolbox, they take one tool out of the box and sharpen that tool, right? So they are focused on getting you really, really deep into one specific tool in your toolbox. Our first one which is now open for, for registration, is called Building an Audience with Alex Lieberman, the co-founder of Morning Brew. And the skill accelerators, their primary outcome is not broad and general knowledge in the same way that we do have for our career accelerators, which, by the way, are still highly applied, but we are wider spread. But the skill accelerators are all about tangible products, such as an audience growth plan or you know something that will go in your portfolio or something that will be able to be put into practice right away. And then We are actually building more courses for launch later in this year. And as for the future, I won't be specific, but I'll say that, you know, we certainly believe that learning is more than just courses. Mm. And we're going to be looking into how we can continue to support the success of our audience, those business decision makers and leaders in new ways in the year ahead. So we're building the foundation of Learning Brew right now, but the future of Learning Brew is really exciting. Thank you so much for that overview. I I, I want to call a couple things out because I think that even even in the framing, even in this sort of like foundation building, you're already doing something that I think traditional education is you know it's a little bit more difficult for them to do. They they might be challenged by, and that is even just sort of separating these ideas of career accelerators versus skill accelerators and unpacking mm-hmm. that. I think a lot of traditional ed- higher education thinks about sort of hey, our, our bachelor's traditional programs do both, right? They, they will help you, in, uh, they will help you develop skills and they're going to help you within the context of your career. And, you know, many, many, many do, 
But at the same time, I think that there's often this gap, right? There's, there's either schools, programs, majors have to make some decision on whether or not they're going to be primarily career focused in their program mm-hmm. development or, sure. or more skilled. And so mm-hmm. I, I love that even in the, in the early stages of learning, you guys are thinking a little bit differently about what is the programming that makes most sense given the outcome that these students are desiring and something as mm-hmm. specific as audience development is sure. something a lot of people are interested. A lot of people are under, you know, craving to grow their Twitter audience, their Twitter following. <laughs> They're craving to understand what does it take to layer a media company on top of a software product that I might have built, et cetera. And that's what, what those individuals need is, is quite different than what somebody who's looking for better context into how to be, how to, how to you know, uh, increase their rank, how to climb this sort of like proverbial corporate ladder. Those, sure. those audiences both need better education. Those audiences both need what something like Learning Brew can offer, but the mechanics and the frameworks that they need in order to get there are, are quite different. So it's neat sure. to hear that you guys are attacking these challenges distinctly. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that was pretty intentional, right? Looking at what we could do to not replace traditional education, but augment it and how we could differentiate ourselves in the market against other ed tech companies. And I think that for us, there's a variety of ways we do that. But I think for us, it's really important that we look at the needs of the learner and our customer and then try to design products because we have the flexibility to design products very quickly and to design products that are highly specific, you know, sort of specific to those needs in a way that's going to be most compelling for the people who are participating in them. I'm curious, I think you've, you're hinting at this already and, and you've done a little bit, of, you've shared a little bit of this with us, but what what is sort of the real opportunity that you all see in the education space right now? Like, obviously there are a number of boot camps and accelerators that already exist. Sure. More institutions of higher education are, are thinking about developing their versions of, you know, a general assembly. So when you guys think about the greater marketplace, is there a particular persona that you're targeting that you think isn't being met? Uh, their needs aren't being met particularly well. Is it a particular, you know, set of set of sort of disciplines that you think need to be sort of like reimagined and Morning Brew is in a position to, to, uniquely attack those those areas and and present new course offerings that you know meet the needs of these these changing dynamics within these you know disciplines and how the sort of like the marketplace responds to them or what is it that you all see that is that is distinct or different and and how do you imagine your offerings being able to be you know the the answers to these questions these the answers to these concerns yeah sure well first of all the ed tech market is huge right I think estimates have it now at over $250 billion and growing. So the opportunity to augment traditional education is significant in general, right? It's just a big marketplace. You know, why Morning Brew has an edge in this space? I I really think there's probably three main reasons, right? The first is we take that Morning Brew voice, that tone we've been talking about, into education and into the educational content we produce. So our programs are based on content that we develop specifically with fun entertainment and a little irreverence sometimes <laughs> thrown in there, right? We we believe making even sort of the driest of business topics, you know, how to read an income sheet or whatever, in, in making it fun will increase the likelihood of learning stickiness and increase the likelihood likelihood of of student engagement, of student retention, of student of students' ability to actually apply this learning. So so first of all, we are not afraid of edutainment. We're not afraid afraid of the mix. Um, between being fun and funny and also 
educational and informative and applied and useful, right? So that's the first thing. The second is we know that at least half the value of taking courses like these is the community that you get a chance to build. Mm. And we're not afraid to say that either, right? Our content is very good, but the average shelf life of a skill is like two years if it's technical, four years if it's not. Um, we know that the skills we're teaching right now are going to continue to evolve, right? We think the way we're teaching them is is future proofed in a lot of ways, but we we aren't. We know that people are going to forget things. We know things are going to change, but the com the community that people build that can be really powerful. Sure. And sure. so we're not afraid of of embracing that as a part of the way we design our programs, and we strategically build highly engaged communities within our cohorts. So we believe students will learn a ton from our content. They'll learn a lot from our experts, but they'll learn even more from each other. And our students leave with this network of people who become personal board of advisors for them. And we've seen this time and time again, where well after the cohort is over, people are still meeting in small groups. They're still supporting each other online. They're still engaged with each other in real meaningful ways. So the, the, that's sort of the second thing. And the third thing is we're focused on what we call hyper-relevance and hyper-current content. So we bring in operator experts to teach all of our master classes. Mm. So you are learning from people who are literally doing the thing that they're teaching right now. So Kat Cole, the CEO, COO, president and COO of Athletic Green, she teaches a master class in leadership in our programs, right? That's outrageous. Nobody, the former CEO of Waze, teaches a class in our MBA program, right? So we bring the most hyper-relevant experts in the field that we can find to teach the things that they're currently doing, that they're currently living. We also hold ourselves to that hyper-current content uh, bar. And what we mean by that is some traditional education is dinged for relying on very old content, right? And it's a challenge for a lot of reasons, but at Morning Brew, we don't have the same limitations. So for example, in the first cohort of MBA, we had a case study because we write our own case studies. They look very different. We call them decision dossiers, the, the modern case study. And we had one on Netflix. In between cohort one and cohort two, which is just a matter of a couple of months, Netflix introduced gaming. So we pulled the content, we revised the case study, and we reintroduced it to module two or cohort two of the program. And now the students were actually wrestling with how gaming was going to be incorporated into the Netflix strategy 30 days or so after Netflix made that announcement. Jeez, yeah. So hyper current. Wow. And so we think we have a role to play because we hold ourselves to those three main differentiators. And we think that if you are somebody looking to upskill or reskill in business, that those three things may be appealing to a large percentage of that ed tech audience. What's so jarring to me Karen, as you're as you're talking, is that those three differentiators are quite honestly probably the the three most challenging things for traditional institutions of higher education to address, right? And while you know you've been very clear that you guys are building something to augment uh, augment traditional education, not to to replace it. What's what's just so striking is that schools challenge with schools are incredibly challenged with quick course development for lots of reasons. They are. Schools are very challenged with ensuring that their, their content is relevant. I remember, I remember in, in I, I studied business at Virginia State School. And I remember in class, 
our, our case studies were on average like 25, 30 years old, right? They were HBR That's studies pretty common. forever ago, right? And I remember thinking- Pretty, pretty common. I, I don't even, I don't really even know anything about Johnson & Johnson. Like they're, <laughs> they're not a particularly relevant brand to me, right? What's, and, uh, what's Kodak? <laughs> what is Kodak? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, wait, there was something before digital cameras? What? But yeah, but, it, but, but exactly, right? And so I think you guys, you guys are creating- creating an option that is that is directly hat you know head on not attacking because that you know sounds aggressive and I know that that's not the intent but offering offering an an alternative or an augmentation of learning that is that meets the very UVPs that I think traditional higher education desires at least many institutions desire but are for lots of reasons often unable to effectively deliver so I I do I do want to ask like who is coming to these programs? Like who, who, who are joining these, these cohorts are, do you have people that are starting, you know, an MBA having never completed their bachelor's degree? Are most of these people they're done with bachelor's and, you know, but they haven't done a traditional master's and this is maybe kind of an alternative or at least a stepping stone. Like talk to us a little bit about the, the student persona groups that are attracted to learning brew offerings. Yeah, it's actually really wide. And so we have people who have just finished an undergraduate degree and they've got one or two years of work experience and they want to augment and and learn more and stay current. We've got people with 15 plus years of work experience. They are senior leaders. They're C-suite people. They've had great experiences over the course of their career professionally, and they're looking to continue to remain current. And that's also one of the things that I think makes us unique or, you know, or at least differentiates us from higher education, which is that in higher education, there's an awful lot of concern about the uniformity of the demographic or level of experience, you know, so there's a lot of concern about, oh my gosh, I can't put a, you know, a bachelor student in with a grad student, that would just be horrifying. The reality is, is that while that might be unacceptable in a higher education environment, either by the students, by the faculty, or both in the non-higher education environment, it's working beautifully. I mean, people are literally, there are opportunities for people to engage at sort of the level of seniority and experience, but the pollination of people at a variety of points in their career is actually one of the things that's most exciting for both the junior and the more senior people in, in, in the programs that we run. So we, we have a very wide audience. When we went to market as a company, we expected to be primarily reaching the morning brew reader demographic. And we thought it would skew very much towards a younger population. And what we're seeing is about a third of our programs are with for, from people that have between nine and 15 years of experience. So wow. it's, it's, it's really diverse and it's really exciting. So you have worked in higher ed for, for many years and within higher ed, you've, you've worn several different hats. And, you know, I'd love to have you just share some, some musings that you have on, you know, this, this moment that higher education finds itself in, given the new context that you have leading this initiative within Morning Brew, but then also your historical context, you know, there's, there's never been more questions in sort of the greater marketplace about the value of of a traditional degree. You know, data suggests that next generations are are far more debt averse than Gen Xers and, and millennials are. So from, from your perspective, what are, you know, two or three of the most significant challenges that Pirate is currently facing? And, you know, where, where do you see opportunity in the marketplace, especially for the more progressive institutions that are, you know, they're not, they're not a top 50 maybe, but they want to 
truly differentiate. How sure. how do they go about doing so right now? And what I guess what are what are the great opportunities that you see in in this moment? Yeah. In preparation for this interview, I was thinking about my time in higher education, and I was actually astounded to realize that cumulatively, I spent more than 15 years in higher education. So I I certainly have a great appreciation and respect for the work of higher education, and I think that all of that respect and appreciation, it should be assumed when I talk about the various challenges I think that they're facing, because I did come up and through many higher education experiences over my career. And I think I can speak for the fact that there's an awful lot of good happening in higher education. And even still, there are a lot of problems that might end up becoming fatal flaws for some institutions. So, you know, higher education is facing a ton of of challenges. I I think high cost structures, long lead times, which we just talked about, and, and, and I think there's this other category, which I'll call misalignment of, a talent, of talent structures. And I think it's those three mm. things that I, I feel most strongly are contributing to some of the challenges that, that higher education is facing today. I'll try my best to, to, to go through them. So first one I said was high cost structures, right? Yep. So, you know, we've got elaborate campus facilities. We've got increased technological needs, especially in the last several years due to COVID. We've got, you know, massive faculty and staff costs. And all of this equates to a need to continually rise tuition or raise tuition. And that continuing tuition raise for tuition dependent institutions is unsustainable, frankly. And I think this is going to be a particular challenge as we see the COVID forced shift uh, to online learning and what it actually ultimately does to the expectations of students and parents regarding what college should be and should cost. So let's say that hypothetically, this sort of forced online learning becomes more of the expectation or more of the norm in some circumstances than a return to a traditional college environment becomes. Those students that are doing most of their work off campus and are paying for elaborate gyms and you know beautiful facilities and nice dorms, but aren't really taking advantage of any of those things, that's going to further heighten the sense of ROI is off, yeah, right? Yeah. And and unwinding such an incredibly high cost structure is not going to be easy for most institutions who have expanded the campus size, built new buildings, retained tenure structures for faculty. You know, these are extremely costly endeavors and it's very hard to unwind them. You know, I think I think a smart way forward for viable institutions is to consider alternative revenue streams. You know, so executive education might be considered an alternative um, revenue stream, facility rentals, yeah. for example, you know, and I think there's a key to integrating campus amenities into their surrounding communities more and having people pay for engagement with the community and creating a living working community in a way that living working learning community in a, you know, some campuses, some corporate campuses have tried to do. I think college campuses may have to look at alternative revenue structures that do some of those things, right? So that, because I think the unwinding of high cost structures, like all those buildings, like tenure as a as a faculty cost, those things are going to be incredibly difficult and take a long time to do if they can be achieved. Yeah. So what's the short-term answer? I think it has something to do with alternative revenue streams. Second one, I said, long lead long, times, yeah. right? So we talked a little bit about this. Yeah. So, you know, for most traditional higher education institutions, course development timelines are really long, you know, m- many months. And 
refreshing content within those courses is also pretty slow. We talked about old case studies, outdated texts, we stale teaching decks. They're all challenges for, for many institutions. And I think it really contributes to a question about the value of investment. And that's a problem. And, and I think that regulating that is even harder because mm. there's, you know, there's certain liberties that are given to faculty around academic freedom and what happens inside the classroom. And so, you know, there's some real challenging, you know, systems in place in higher education that make it hard to do uh, the kind of things that we're talking about here. One of those systems is probably tenure, which I know is the holy grail of things, but that's the last one I mentioned, which is a misaligned talent structure. And it's not just the faculty side, it's also probably the staff side too. And I think, you know, for the faculty, valuing research over failing to understand the value of skills-based and applied learning, which we already talked about, creating sort of subpar experiences for the students because of those things. And I do want to go back to my clarification at the top of this answer, which is that I, I still appreciate a lot of what higher education can do. I appreciate learning for learning's sake. I do believe there is a place for non-skills-based learning. Like I loved courses in Greek literature um, and philosophy, but I think higher education needs to innovate in a very serious way across many of its structures to rethink the balance of pure, you know, sort of learning for learning's sake versus skills and career preparation versus, you know, the balance between teaching and learning, the balance between theory and application. All those things need to be reevaluated, which will essentially come to the, to the sort of core of, of higher education. So those are my musings. I think I covered all three. I think you did perfectly. And I think just to piggyback on that, what, what we're seeing too is we're seeing institutions that are cognizant and awake to these challenges and, and eager to do what they can to move the needle in a, in a different direction. I think what we're seeing is we're seeing them take a lot of notes from what are corporations doing? Like, and, and, you know, for, for years, for years, like using any sort of sales jargon within the context of enrollment <laughs> management, for instance, was like a yeah, big sure. no, no, right? Like titles, yeah, like yeah. CMO within the context of an institution, totally off limits. Right. And yet I, yeah. I do think that there is something to be said for the, the institutions, especially those that are tuition dependent, right, and, and don't have these incredible endowments that they can just rely on, don't have incredibly engaged alumni bases, right, you're going to have to start thinking a little bit more like a business. And I, like, like, I do wonder, like, will, will we start seeing an emergence of like, you know, chief product officer, somebody who's, you know, like, will we will we get to a point in higher education, where there's finally this like very, very clear, well articulated owned sort of and claimed, I should say, sort of sentiment that our programs and our majors and our offerings, like th these are our products, right? And and like any product, like anyone knows, they need to be maintained. We need, you know, 2.0s and 3.0s and 4.0s, right? And if, if the pro if there is no product market fit, it's time to go do something else, right? And I, mm -hmm. I, I do wonder, and I, 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 quite frankly, I see people like you all, I see what, you know, Morning Brew is doing and, and what others in the space are doing with boot camps and accelerators. And if I'm, you know, a, a 16, 17 year old and I'm, you know, thinking about I, maybe, I, maybe, maybe, hey, I even have a TikTok following. Maybe I've grown a little, maybe, maybe I've started an online business and I know that college is important, but maybe it's not the most important thing to me, at least right now. And when you, when you see these other alternatives, right, well, again, we're not here to sort of say that the Morning Brew Accelerator is a replacement for a bachelor's of business and administration. I do think that schools need to, it can be helpful to think in extremes, right? And and to, to a 17-year-old, 
looking at these options, I think more and more there is a compelling argument for, do I want to do something different at least to start? And then, and then if it doesn't work out, like if, if, if I enroll in a boot camp, I, I, my brother, my brother's 17 years old and his friends are having these conversations right now, right? Like what if we take, you know, general assembly coding bootcamp instead, if that doesn't work, if we don't get a job, then we'll go do something else. Or what if we, what if we try the Lambda school thing? Like maybe, maybe just give it a shot again. If it doesn't work out, then we'll, then we'll default to college. And I, I just think it, it, these are some radical, there's a radical reckoning happening right now in, in, in education. And I do think that the more progressive institutions will start to think a little bit more like a business because quite frankly, they're going to have to. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that. And I'll just say, we didn't build any of our products to replace higher education, yep. but I'm not saying that it won't. For the right for the right person, you know, I think that those are all, you said a radical reckoning, those are all viable questions that, you know, younger people who are thinking about taking on degrees should be thinking about. And I don't think programs like the ones that we're running in Morning Brew or elsewhere are completely off the table as alternatives. I think they are different and they are different in a variety of ways we don't have time to get into because of the length of the podcast, but you know, they're different. And so people need to go in to those with their eyes wide open about those differences. But other than that, I completely think it's possible that they'll become an alternative. It's just, we didn't build them for that purpose. We built them to augment. And if they become an alternative, then all, and if they work for the people who are taking them and choosing them as an alternative, then all the better. Yeah. Well, Karen, you've been very generous with your time. I've got one final question for you. Sure. And then I will let you go and reimagining the future of education and building a <laughs> true competitor to the bachelor's of business administration. But if you were a, if you were, if you were the president of a college or university in 2022 right now, and if you could sort of wave this magic wand and within a year's time, your school's products, the programs, majors, minors, et cetera, your school's experience and your school's marketing and communications you know, we're, we're all perfectly aligned with where, where you think that they should be given sort of the moment we're in right now, you know, where would you start and, and how would you go about building sort of this perfectly harmonious ecosystem? Well, I love that you gave me a magic wand cause I would need it. Um, <laughs> you know, look, we, 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 we talk a lot about, you know, all the things that I think, you know, needs to get to look at, to be looked at in higher education. I'd say overall, I agree with you that institutions of higher learning need to act a bit more like a business. So for me, I would look at cost structure of faculty and staff differently around the distribution of tenured faculty versus non-tenured track faculty, for example. I would focus on consultative sales in the admissions processes, as opposed to uh, gatekeeping, which I think might be most commonly applied to the admissions process today. I would create products that meet the needs of a very different customer than I think the original product design of courses within higher education were designed for. I'd do way more alumni programming to create a consistent flywheel, and I'd pay a lot more attention to data systems would be extremely important inside any institution of higher learning where I had a magic wand and I was the president, um, and I could actually make all this, this stuff come true. You know, this all may sound a little for profity, but I think it can all be done in a nonprofit, mission-driven way. And leaders in higher education just need to be prepared to disrupt systems that have been in places for literally hundreds of years. And that is not going to be easy, hence the magic wand. But I actually truly believe it'll be necessary. And so if I could do it, that's what I would do. 
Very well said. Karen, this has been a privilege. Thank you so much for sharing an hour of your, your life with us. If folks want to just learn a little bit more from you, follow you, understand more of what's happening at Learning Brew, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Sure. So they can follow me on Twitter at Edgiverse Queen, which is a fun way of, of talking about the building we're doing at Morning Brew. And certainly throw Morning Brew's Learning Twitter a, a, a follow at Learning Brew. And lastly, if people want more information, they can go to learning.morningbrew.com and you'll see everything we're working on right now. Wonderful. And to make it easy for all you listeners, all those links will be included below in the show notes. Thank you, Karen, so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Zach. Thanks for inviting me. Hey there, we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Enrollify podcast. The Enrollify podcast is brought to you by Enrollify, a learning community for enrollment managers and higher education marketers. Enrollify was built to empower enrollment marketers with the ideas, the strategies, and the tools that they need to optimize the resources that they do have to generate the results that they need. You can explore our other podcasts like Starter Stories and CRM Prov, or sign up for one of our newsletters, or even watch an episode of Frideas, our weekly video segment, at enrollify.org. And if you know anyone that you think that we should have on this show or any one of our other shows, please reach out to me directly at Zach, that's Z-A-C-H, at enrollify.org. Again, that's Zach, Z-A-C-H, at enrollify.org. And I'd be happy to chat with you about getting you or someone you know on one of our shows. 